0: Welcome to The Public Morality. We are less than a year away from the presidential election. But questions about the state of American democracy linger. How long can American democracy survive in its current state marred by distrust, cynicism, and apathy? How much elasticity remains in America's ever-changing dynamics, or has it reached its democratic limits. Joining me to discuss these and other questions, we welcome back to the public morality Professor Paul Collins. Collins is professor of legal studies and political science at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Professor Paul Collins, it's so great to have you back on the public morality.
1: Thanks so much, Byron. It's always great to speak with you.
0: American democracy has become, in my view, a catchphrase beyond voting, how would you define uh, American democracy? And how are we to understand that definition in light of today?
1: That's a heavy question. (laughs) When I think about what American democracy means, in addition to voting, I tend to think about government and especially elected government reflecting the will of the people and, in terms of how we're doing with that today, I don't think we're doing so great. And so, you know, when I think about a question like that, two things stand out to me in particular. First is the electoral college, and, and we're increasingly seeing presidential candidates lose the popular vote, but win the electoral college. And people are starting to take notice. And for example, about sixty-five percent of Americans um, support getting rid of the Electoral College. I also think about gerrymandering, wh- which I've long thought to be one of the the main threats to American democracy, certainly in the modern era. And this is, you know, this is an old practice of drawing legislative districts for typically partisan gain, um, but. You know, what it's really done is create legislatures that are not at all reflective of the will of the people. And it's also resulted in the election of some very extreme candidates. And in in exceptional cases, it's used to dilute the the power of certain voters, including voters of color. And so if you look at lots of legislative districts, say congressional districts today, they don't look like unified bodies of land that are sort of united in some way like a city. They they look kind of crazy. And Jim Jordan, who, who almost became the Speaker of House, his district looks like a duck. And, you know, that helps him get elected and reelected. And more broadly, this idea of gerrymandering just really fosters a disconnect between the will of the people and and how they're actually represented in legislatures.
0: When the first amendment, uh, the guaranteed freedom of the press in 1791, there was at the time, I suspect a uniform understanding of what the press meant today. That term has become more opaque. So, um, with traditional forms such as newspapers, magazines and television and radio, which went around in 1791, are now forced to make room, in some cases, concede dominance to other forms, namely social media. So specifically, how does social media impact our understanding of democracy?
1: I think it's happening in a few different ways. So first of all, social media has really served to polarize people. And, and what I mean by that is it's very, very easy for individuals to seek out information that affirms their belief system. And this, of course, isn't new in American history. Um, you know, if we go back in, into the early era of the nation, newspapers used to be closely aligned with political parties, for example, But social media has really magnified this, even in the sense of which social media people follow and and which social media people use to get their news. And, you know, it's really not a stretch to say, if you tell me where you get your news, I can probably guess your political party affiliation. I think another thing that social media has done is enable us to spread misinformation and, and to do so very quickly. And this is very concerning for me. It's in some ways led to a cult of personality among politicians where people latch on to the idea of, you know, what, what a politician is, not really what a politician stands for. And then lastly, there's not a lot of depth to um some of the information and politics that gets shared via social media and that relates to my previous point that you know you look at for example um clips on social media services like TikTok. they're very short right they don't really have a lot of depth and so we're seeing people become fans of politicians perhaps because of their personalities and not because of the positions they stand for and this seems to be going on and on and on and what i'm observing as a college professor is some students don't really have a genuine understanding of the core differences between even the two major political parties in this country the democrats and the republicans
0: well that actually leads me to my next question because i know you work with some a lot of these people trend after trend, poll after poll shows a stark trend I should say that those 18 to 34 consistently show a lack of faith in democratic rule and those findings are not just US findings, those are consistent worldwide what are your thoughts on that? I definitely
1: see this I I, I think there's a lot going on here, I, I think some of it is that Folk, Younger Americans, and as you said, people worldwide, they don't feel represented by government. They feel that government is representing someone else. Uh, exactly who that is might depend on your political preferences, but they're not being represented. And this is not just looking at government, you know, however we conceptualize that, but it's also looking at political parties. And so there's a sense of of jadedness that the system doesn't work, that their voice doesn't count. I think this feeds back into the social media era where we're not really seeing a lot of attention to policy differences, like the way we used to talk. I mean, I remember... When people, you know, if you go back to, like, the election of uh, 2000 where a lot of people felt that the two candidates, Al Gore and George Bush, were really, really similar. Um, Today, I don't know that that's really true at all, Um, but I worry more that people don't understand the differences between the political parties because when you're getting your information and it's focused primarily on the personalities of political actors rather than their policy positions, you know, that contributes to this idea that, that you're not represented by people in power.
0: So, so, so related to that, um, is that a function of, uh, for lack of a better word, a decline in our knowledge of and appreciation for American civics?
1: I think so. Um, I think the 24-hour news cycle is part of this. Um, You know, when cable news, regardless of, you know, whether it's liberal leaning or conservative leaning, is running all the time, they need to fill space. And so a lot of the space that they're filling is just talking about, you know, really mundane issues that usually involve personality um, rather than true political differences. And this gets, you know, then shortened even further on various social media sites. And we're not thinking about the big picture differences, for example, between the political parties. We're not thinking about the roles of political actors as much as we used to, you know, and just to give an example people have long, across the world, people have long blamed the incumbent party for things like inflation and high gas prices. Um, But in reality, uh, the the president of the United States, whether it's Donald Trump or Joe Biden, they don't really have much control over gas prices, right? If they did, they would keep them low to get reelected. And we're getting even further away from that basic understanding of what government can and cannot do. And, you know, I I would argue that, This is in part the fault of the education system. Um, And I mean that at all different levels, elementary school, high school, you know, I'll take responsibility for that as a college professor, um, that we're seeing that deep understanding for at least how the political process works, being replaced with this sort of quick and dirty understanding of politics as personality. Mm.
0: There has long been an implicit assumption that in spite of ideological differences, both sides held the same objective as a willingness to to govern within the democratic guardrails, small d. Uh, Would you agree that with that supposition today, is there a common belief in your view Um, that both parties want to at least stay inside those Democratic guardrails in spite of their ideological differences?
1: I'm not optimistic that that's the case anymore. And I I think the the strongest evidence to bear is the last presidential election, right? So the United States, this beacon of democracy, can, can no longer claim to have a peaceful transition of power. And we had an actual attempted coup to put someone who objectively lost the presidential election into power. And this wasn't just perpetrated by, you know, extremists. It was also perpetrated by members of the House of Representatives. And indeed, some members of the Republican Party continue to deny that Biden won the election. And and they probably don't all believe this, but that's part of the problem, that some are so afraid of of whatever you know Trump's potential wrath may be that they won't say anything different in in public. And that's what's another fascinating thing that at least it seems to me that the most vocal Republicans who are willing to say, "Hey, you know, but this was a fair election and and Biden won this election. Are those who have either lost their office those who are retiring right they're people that aren't in power anymore and that's a strong signal to me that elected politicians aren't willing to stand up to the truth if the truth isn't convenient for their political party and so this is a good demonstration of how you know these guardrails on democracy aren't nearly as strong as we think they are. And I have some trouble imagining, you know, what could happen if this is pushed even further.
0: Well, you mentioned the 2020 election. I mean, it's been well documented that there was no widespread malfeasance um, four years ago, yet uh, many, um, mostly the Republican Party, hold to this theory. So talk about... Right after the 2020 election, there was a number of state legislatures um, dominated by the Republican Party who passed legislation to ensure voter safety. And whilst one could argue that it may or may not have an impact on who votes, it does have an impact on trust in democracy. If you have to have that type of legislation, talk about some of those pieces of legislation and, and how that does impact the overall ethos of American democracy?
1: Yeah, I I, I mean, we did see some actions coming out of that election to protect the safety of voters, the safety of poll workers. The fact that we need that in the first place is a little bit troubling to me. Um, But we also saw some efforts to take the claim that the 2020 presidential election was somehow suspect or even illegitimate and to push it further by passing legislation that makes it harder to vote. And this was usually done to prevent racial minorities from voting, right? Poor people from voting, basically people who are more likely to vote for the Democratic Party. From voting, and these are things like voter ID laws, for example. Um, and so that's an interesting dynamic. That on the one hand we saw some efforts to make sure that voters are safe, but on the other hand we saw some efforts that will probably have the long term effect of making it harder for certain members of society to actually um, cast their ballots.
0: Well, and and, and that um, brings up a dark chapter. Uh, in American democracy, you've already talked about uh, people making it harder for poor people, people of color, specifically African-Americans to vote, um, along with the language that there was malfeasance in Philadelphia. There was malfeasance in Atlanta. There was right. malfeasance in Detroit. And that conjures up, I get, in my view, dark chapters uh, of the American narrative in that these others, this other group, is um, uh, uh, putting a monkey wrench in in, in our uh, elective process, which furthers this sort of divisive climate that we already are under.
1: Absolutely. This, you know, this is not the first time in American history that claims have been made in very, very racialized ways about, you know, what's going on with the integrity of elections. And I don't think that it's chance that election workers in Atlanta, Georgia, women of color, um, were signaled out um, as playing important roles in this alleged conspiracy. Of course, they didn't play any of these roles, but there's certainly significant racialized dynamics to where and who was being alleged to have engaged in in this type of behavior um, that that was supposed to have resulted in Biden's victory. Of course, as you said, we know that the election was fair and square, um, but that doesn't change the fact that a significant majority of Republicans believe that it was not a fair election.
0: I read a... uh research poll back in September. 86% of those polled believe Democrats and Republicans are more focused on fighting each other. 85% believe the cost of political campaigns prohibit good people, however defined, uh, from seeking office. And 84% believe special interest groups have more influence. Uh, assuming that the, the accuracy of those numbers, doesn't that just entrench apathy in our democracy, if if you have these large numbers of people who view democracy in those in those terms,
1: absolutely, those those are definitely troubling numbers. Um, I I think that you know this is how a lot of folks are experiencing politics, and so you know the media and especially social media seem to amplify this idea of politics as personality as individuality instead of talking about policy and and things that could be areas for common ground among Democrats and Republicans. And so this leads to more of this perception that politics are really about how candidates smear mud, right, how they interact with one another instead of their policy positions. And, you know, the cost of running for office has gotten so out of hand um, that, it turns good people off who might otherwise run. They, they worry that all that they're gonna do is fundraise instead of actual governing. And this is probably in, in some situations not an unreasonable concern, right? When elections, even local elections, are now costing you know tens of thousands or even millions of dollars, That really means that the role of of particularly short-term legislators like House members is that of a fundraiser rather than that of a legislator. And then, you know, I think this perception about interest groups having too much influence can probably be borne out through any number of examples. So, you know, interest groups have long been – a part of of government, a way for people to have their their preferences represented in a sort of organized way. And they've long had some influence in government in good and in bad ways. But there's definitely a perception that some groups today are particularly privileged, and they probably are. And, you know, when I think about young people and I think about what some of their concerns are You know, being safe in schools is a legitimate concern in light of the gun violence epidemic that we have in this country. And when you ask America's youth about, you know, why they don't think that there has been real change with respect to even, you know, common sense gun laws that I think most Americans, regardless of their party, could agree on, they usually point to the power of the gun law. They 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 often name groups like the National Rifle Association. And they have a perception that some politicians put the interests of the gun lobby ahead of the safety of children. And I don't think that's an unreasonable perspective.
0: If we peel if we peel back the layers and we remove the cult of personalities, whether we're talking about the Tea Party, Occupy Wall Street, Black Lives Matter. And I would throw MAGA also into this category. Are these not collectively public statements that democracy is not working for some portion of society?
1: I I think that's absolutely fair. So regardless of one's political position, one of the ways that we make that position known is through organization and, and through movements and large-scale social movements, whether we're talking about the political right or the political left, can, can be viewed as strong signals that Americans associated with this movement are dissatisfied and, and that they're looking for change. And I worry a little bit here about how the media sometimes portray these movements according to the most extreme members. And so, you know, we see this with respect to focusing on violence in coverage of Black Lives Matter, for example. We see this with a focus perhaps on racism in coverage of the MAGA movement, right? Not all people, in fact, most people associated with Black Lives Matter are not turning to violence, just like most Republicans are not overtly racist, although there certainly are members of of both of those movements that that have those characteristics. But when they're portrayed, when the movements are portrayed in these ways, it's kind of hard to find common ground. And I think we see this through the portrayal of the most extreme elements of any given social movement.
0: Well, well, to your last to your last answer, that that extremism you talk about sort of goes back to something you said earlier about um, the way cable television and social media need to drive eyeballs to to their particular um, format. So it's not as exciting to show a peaceful MAGA demonstration as it is to have someone say something that is just overtly racist.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. Just like it's easier to cover Black Lives Matter protests that turn into violence than it is to talk about the positions of that movement, which would be a much more rational conversation to have in this country. And it would be the way to find common ground. Right. I mean, I think that's what is really concerning to me is that it's increasingly hard to find common ground because People look at these various social movements and just have this gut reaction that oh that's what that movement stands for, and we're not having the discussions about what where we could meet in the middle and what genuinely smart policy change we can make that I think most people can accept.
0: Uh, I'm also I've been personally curious about how the Cold War plays. Uh, a role in, in the decline of American democracy. Be, because during the Cold War, the Soviet Union was obviously the existential threat. Um, once the Cold War ended, it seems that we now view other Americans who don't think like us as the existential threat. And I wondered how you, how you saw that, how you felt about that.
1: Yeah, I think I think that's a really good point. Um, and there's definitely support for the idea that when the country does indeed face an existential threat it has this unifying idea i mean we even have a phrase for it rally around the flag effect um and so when the country was involved in the cold war we you know most americans i would say an overwhelming majority of americans were united behind some of these core ideas about what America is and what American democracy looks like and we had a sort of unified enemy for lack of a better way of saying it and we saw this reflected you know in lots of different ways with support for you know the US Olympic teams it, we saw it in film and in music right Mo- movies like Red Dawn and and Rocky 4 and you know more recently We saw this idea of unification facing an existential threat after the terrorist attacks of September 11th. And, you know, that's more than two decades ago now. And and so it's not quite the same that Americans perceive an existential threat. And so I think you're right that we're starting to look at each other or people that are different than us as some type of threat to different perceptions of what the American way of life is. And, you know, I I have doubts about whether or not there really is a core overlapping, you know, sort of collective conscience as to what the American way of life is in 2023.
0: Well, may, well, maybe the, the, the new emerging uh political party will be in America will be the Donner Party. Um I, I digress, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh since President Biden assumed office, uh the United States, I believe, has held two democracy summits. Short of in the any in the indications that the us is prepared to address its own democratic issues do such efforts merely broadcast uh, externally what i would call internal hypocrisy
1: yeah i you know i i'm very skeptical of these sorts of summits or you know these committees which are often about some type of virtue signaling but really Almost never have any any teeth, right? So, so what I mean by that is, at least in my view, summits and committees are are rarely serious attempts to institute real change. They're 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 for show in a lot of ways. So I, I think it's fair to say that they do signal a type of internal hypocrisy that you know they they signal to the outside world that America cares about democracy, but we don't seem to be willing to talk about reforms that majorities of Americans support that would improve our own democracy. And not only that, you know, when we look inside the country, I I would guess that most Americans aren't even aware that these summits have taken place. Right. So I'm not super keen on these ideas unless they actually result in some type of concrete proposals for, for change. It
0: it seems uh to me that much of the public conversation around American democracy is always somewhat incomplete. In other words, we discuss liberty, um, as a standalone without ever talking about equality. Conversely, we talk about rights without talking about responsibilities. Your thoughts.
1: Yeah. uh, Um, you know, Freedom and equality are absolutely core to the American identity, but we disagree about what those concepts mean. What does it mean to be autonomous? What does it mean to have dignity, for example? If you ask people at different ends of the political spectrum, I think you'll get different answers to these questions. And and we often try to oversimplify concepts like liberty, like equality, um, without thinking about the very tough choices that that often have to be made. And so, you know, think about the the conversation about the Second Amendment that, that pits individuals' rights to keep and bear arms versus the safety of some of our most vulnerable citizens, including our children. You know, think about how people talk about what it means to be free in different ways, right? The way that somebody who's concerned about the reproductive freedom talks about liberty might be different from the way that somebody who's concerned that their taxes are too high might be talking about liberty. These are very hard issues to sort through. And I'm not optimistic that we're even having conversations about the juxtaposition between freedom and equality, between rights and responsibilities. These are serious conversations that we probably need to have as
0: a nation. I want to come back to something that you touched on earlier. You mentioned the Electoral College. Have we, I guess, in effect, outgrown the Electoral College um, in the the trajectory? Um, I mean, you don't have to be Notre Dame to figure out if Democrats in 2024 win Wisconsin, Michigan and Pennsylvania, regardless of what the other so-called battleground states do, it's the ballgame and the presidential sweepstakes. And if if that's the case, how healthy is that for our democracy? Probably
1: not healthy at all. (laughs) You know, (laughs) I mean, on the one hand, I, I think the best demonstration of how outdated the Electoral College is, is, is that, you know, people are are losing, candidates are losing the popular vote and winning the Electoral College. So, so there's that disconnect right there. Um, yeah. And that's probably the main reason why a majority of Americans support getting rid of the Electoral College. And it's also probably the main reason why Democrats support that more, because Democrats tend to be on the losing side of situations like that. But that being said, almost a majority of Republicans support getting rid of the Electoral College, too. Um, On the other hand, um, the other issue with the Electoral College is just how it distorts how candidates run for the White House. You know, as you pointed out, a small number of states seem to get a a, a substantial amount of attention. And if you live in states that tend to go one way or the other, right, solid blue um, or solid red states, It's almost as if there isn't a presidential election going on. So this isn't good for the way that people think about the differences between political candidates, how they understand the differences between political parties and their platforms and their policies. So I'm a big proponent for getting rid of the Electoral College. Uh,
0: Over the past six decades, I believe, or so. There's been a steady gap between rising productivity and stagnating wages. What impact does this sort of I don't want to delve into economics, but what impact does this sort of economic dichotomy have on the state of our our democracy?
1: I think it creates frustration. And I think it's an interesting area where the frustration probably crosses party lines. Um, maybe not to the same extent, but people vote with their pocketbooks. And so when government seen is not doing enough about something like inflation, the incumbent is going to pay for that. And when we add in to the perception that businesses might have too much power in government, right? Which is a common liberal critique of government or that government cares too much about environmental protection and not enough jobs, which is a common conservative critique. You end up with an overall sense that government doesn't represent the common person, which probably translates to decreased faith in democracy more generally And so it's not surprising to me that during periods like this where business profits seem to be very, very high and wages seem to be stagnating and people's grocery bills are very high and and we're facing a housing crisis because of the the price of rent, that this also translates into frustration with the very functioning of the democratic system.
0: Uh. Um, Is American democracy. I I hate to sound Marxian here, but forgive me, uh, Professor. But is is American democracy a bourgeois enterprise that's failing the bourgeois class? I
1: I think there's a lot to be said for the idea that American democracy is, is at least being perceived to fail a majority of the nation, but especially the poor and the middle class. And so You know, when the average person looks at the state of the economy, they see that the prices are rising, their paychecks aren't keeping up. And it's absolutely natural to blame the government for this. Again, even if the government doesn't have that much control over the economy, I think when we add in to to the reality of how representative government is working, people see gerrymandering. They see the power of money in elections they see the disconnect between the popular vote and who occupies the White House. And some people, you know, perhaps more than any other period in American history are starting to question the very integrity of elections. These are troubling trends and these trends do not bode well for the health of democracy in America.
0: Well, I'm listening to this broadcast and I'm listening to you, Professor Collins, and and I and I hear you talk about uh, voter integrity. Uh, we've talked about uh, increased production, st- stagnating wages. Um, the government doesn't represent me. Um, and then you then you, then you tell me that to be an American citizen, I, there's a corresponding burden of liberty and equality. Uh, coupled with rights as well as responsibilities. I, I got to tell you, I, I think I want to throw up my hands. Okay. <laughs> what, 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 what are you going to say to me? <laughs> yeah, no,
1: I, I, I think that's fair. It's not easy to participate in a democracy. And I you know, I think that's a really good point that you raise. I'm asking more. I'm asking more of the average citizen than they might be willing to give, right? I'm asking for an America where we consider finding common ground, where we look beyond personalities and look at policies, when we have hard conversations about race in this country, for example, and that's a lot. And that might be too much for the average person to bear, right? We have to come to terms with some internal contradictions that we probably all have about what it means to live in a functioning democracy. Um, I'm afraid there's not an easy way out here, Byron.
0: Well, what about this notion? It's one that I um, cling to, um, that I think that we suffer from uh, what I'm calling civic immaturity, that that to I think to do the kind of things you have articulated in this conversation requires that we have to also unlearn some things. And um, we have to be honest about the American narrative in ways I'm not sure that we're willing to be honest about. I mean, I think you can hold... We we got to hold in both hands that that Thomas Jefferson is probably our, our you know the greatest Renaissance man we've created, but at the same time had some moral failings. We got to we got to hold both of those, and I, I don't know if we have the maturity to do both of those things. It, it,
1: I I think there's there's a lot to that, and I think a really good example of how we're seeing that. Is the conversation around critical race theory in in elementary schools, really, and junior high schools, where this is a concept that comes out of law school. I, I think it, I think critical race theory is unfortunately named. I think it would a better name would be critical American History or something like that, where we basically try to come to terms with some of the darker parts of our history and the long-term consequences of the legacies of slavery and the legacies of things like redlining with respect to um, how we evaluate mortgage risks. But instead of talking about the actual issues, we see an oversimplification of this idea that if you talk about the dark moments in American history, then we're somehow gonna make students feel bad. and that's not an appropriate thing to do. And, and, and so the perspective, at least as far as I can tell, is that, well, well, it's just better not to talk about these things, right? But that's really problematic because while this country has done a lot of great things, this country has had some and continues to have some very, very dark periods. And I don't think it's healthy to the national conversation to forget about those dark periods and forget about the legacies of some of the countries past practices.
0: Hmm. Well, but, but that sort of gets to the gets to my point about the, the the civic immaturity that if if I read a book and I don't like the book, but I have the platform to say, Paul Collins, you can't read this book because it'll be bad for you. I mean, that seems to be antithetical to um, the whole reason for the American experiment. I mean, that just. It it just seems that kind of immaturity does not make us better. It's never made us better.
1: No, I, I agree. I agree. I, I, I mean, I'm increasingly shocked by the idea that we're banning books from libraries. I'm not surprised that the people often trying to do the banning haven't actually read the books because that that corresponds exactly with what I would guess. But it, it, yeah, I, li- I like this idea of it's an immaturity. I mean, I think we do, particularly at this moment in time, have to be more mature as citizens in this nation, have to be willing to have co- hard conversations. And I think we have to be willing to evolve too, right? So you know, it, it's, it's okay to say, oh, I misunderstood that concept and I see where you're coming from. And while I might not entirely agree with you, you know, I, I appreciate that you and I have a different perspective or we have to admit what, that, that it's actually okay to change one's perspective when they obtain more information on a topic. Instead, it seems like, you know, and this is especially true, I think, in the social media era that we have a willingness to either stick our heels in the ground and never move or just put our head on, in the sand and, and be unwilling to entertain the very possibility that were
0: wrong. If if I said to you, World War World War Two started um, when Germany invaded Poland, you probably would not disagree with me. Most people probably wouldn't disagree with that. Mm-hmm. But if I said to you, "Why was there a civil war in America?" we're going to have we're going to have reasons across the board. So, what does it say about us and the future of our democracy? When, when, in my view, the greatest crisis in American history, there's not collective agreement on the origins of it. Yeah,
1: I, I, I mean, it's an interesting idea. What, what I, what I'm concerned more about is that, you know, let's say that historians point to different reasons for the proximate cause of the Civil War. I don't think any legitimate historian would not mention slavery, right? And so that's a little bit of a nuanced conversation, right? To say, okay, You know, there may have been several contributing factors, but slavery certainly was, if not the single most important contributing factor, at least one of the most important contributing factors. I think it's different to say, well, that had nothing to do with it, which unfortunately is something that some people seem to be willing to suggest. And I I mean, I, I guess I can sort of understand why they're not willing to talk about dark parts in American history. But I don't think it does anybody um, any benefit to ignore political reality because it doesn't mesh with whatever your belief system is.
0: I think it was the football coach, um, Paul Brown, who coached, who coached uh, for Cleveland Browns and coach Jim Brown. And he said, I don't know if Jim Brown is at the head of his class, but it doesn't take too long to take role. That's kind of where you put slavery, right? I mean, slavery may not be the head of the class, but it doesn't take too long to you get the slavery as a possibility. Uh, Professor Paul Collins, I want to thank you so much for this great conversation. Thank you for once again joining us on the Public Morality, sir. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Byron.
1: I, I always enjoy chatting with you, and I appreciate that you're addressing these very, very significant tro- topics in your work. Thank you.
0: The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron byronatpublicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook, as well as Twitter, the archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Prime, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Those listening to the Public Rally on WSNC can also listen on a tap. Using your mobile device, simply go to your application page, search WSNC 90.5, and click open to listen from anywhere. The Public Rally is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Woods.